0: The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark Glory to you, Christ. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know yet he could not be hidden but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet Now the woman was a Gentile a Syrophoenician by birth And she begged him to cost the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go away. Your demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone The gospel of the Lord. Lord Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, your word is breathed out by you. May it teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly transformed into the likeness of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Won't you please take your seats? Waiting. It's a strange feeling, isn't it? That was probably just long enough for you to begin to think to yourself, is John going to do something? Is Claudia going to do something? Did we forget to do something? Were we supposed to do something so that he would begin? Uh, Waiting brings up all kinds of emotions within us, whether you're waiting for the microwave to heat up your cup of coffee, uh, or you're waiting for the birth of your first child, or you're waiting for somebody to die. Waiting, waiting, waiting. It's so much of what we have to endure and go through in life. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, we read that everything was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. As we come to Genesis chapter 16 uh, this morning, we need to keep in mind that we are coming off the back of those wonderful promises and those wonderful words in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness and then Genesis 16 happens. If you feel like you've been here before, you only have to go back to chapter 12 when God made that initial promise and no sooner had he done that than Abram went down to Egypt and lied about Sarai being his sister and not his wife. Uh, Here then seems to be this pattern. God makes wonderful promises and Abram messes them up. Uh, Sometimes we learn from people what we should be like. Things worthy of emulation and sometimes we learn what not to be like and what not to do, and there is much of that in Genesis 16. If last week's question on Abram's lips was, how do I know, the question now seems to move to, how will I wait? What will I do while I wait? How will I respond to God's promises when they seem no closer today than they were 10 years ago? Who will I trust and rely and depend upon for God's promise? What if God needs my help to get the job done? Perhaps it's time to step up and make a plan. And so we arrive at Genesis 16 and we're told that Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years in verse 3. But before that we're reminded that at this point Sarai had borne no children. The promise of God had consisted of a land that God would show Abram in chapter 12, a great nation that he would become, and a blessing to all the nations of the earth as Abram is blessed. Uh, That uh, promise was extrapolated later on in chapter 12 when the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I'll give this land. In chapter 13, he says, look around to the north and the south and the east and the west. All this land you see, I will give to you and your offspring. Uh, later on in chapter 15, the Lord takes Abram outside and looks, tells him to look at the stars and says that a son from your own flesh, of your own flesh and blood, from your own belly, he will be your heir and not another. And again, God promises that it is to Abram's descendants he will give this land. Now, I don't know about you, but I can honestly say that I have never had God show up in my life that many times and speak to me. In fact, he's never shown up in my life and spoken to me in the way that he speaks to Abram. And so it does jar us when we get to chapter 16 uh, that Abram and Sarah are still waiting on God to fulfill his promise and that they go and take this course of action. They are living in the land. They do seem to have been blessed, at least financially. There's the 318 fighting men and the victory that they won over the kings back in chapter 14. But in terms of children like dust of the earth, like dust in your vacuum cleaner when you empty it, well, there are none of those. And it seems that Sarai in particular is feeling that pain. She's aging out. She's waited 10 years. Her barrenness was most likely the most painful experience in her life and persevering steadfast faith in the promise of God month after month after month could not have been easy for her, could not have been easy in their marriage. Sometimes we might be tempted to think that God is slow to keep his promise. Here we begin to see that at work that there is a long interval between the promise made and the promise realized. And we might be tempted to think that the promise has been broken or that there's something that I need to do on my side to activate that promise. Like when I get a new cell phone or when I get a new credit card and I've got to activate it, it arrives but it's not part of my life until I activate it. And, and so Sarah goes to Abram one day and says, okay, let's activate this promise. Here's what we're going to do. Sarah says to Abram, verse 2, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, that servant that we were introduced to in chapter 1, in in verse 1, Hagar. Go to her, and maybe I will obtain children through her. Sarah knows that God has promised. She knows that it is God uh, who has prevented her from being able to conceive. And nevertheless, she acts in rebellion against God and says, hey Abram, let's do it our way. So she concocts this plan that might seem very strange to us, uh, but in the moment, and in the ancient Near East, it was uh, very acceptable. Uh, The neighbors, uh, the people down at the country club, they wouldn't have given it a second thought. In actual fact, they were probably thinking, why did Abram and Sarah wait so long to do this? This is what we're all doing. It just makes good common sense. It's practical, it's expedient, it's reasonable, and Abram just goes along with it. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife, and he went into her, into Hagar, and she conceived. Well, that's great, isn't it? That's what we were all waiting for. We're waiting for Abram to have a child. 10 years in the promised land, baby is on his way. Uh, get Abram a cigar, Sarai and Hagar, they can figure this all, all out. Let's, let's get them into the prayers of the people, there's a baby on the way. Well, a couple of things that should grab our attention. Firstly, the Lord had said to Abram that it would be through his true flesh and blood that a son would come from yourself, not from a slave. Secondly, in Genesis 2... We've already heard, and the writer has made the point, that a man should leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. A monogamy, monogamy, uh, one man for one woman. Thirdly, the words that are used are identical to what took place in Genesis 3 with the serpent and Eve. The woman said, Sarai says, you listen to your wife. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. Eve took some. Sarai took. She gave some to her husband. And Sarai gives to her husband, Hagar. Sarai, like Eve, is doubting God's generosity and best intentions for her. And in her doubt, she encourages Abram to doubt. He listens, it goes along, and is fully responsible in his compliance and together they both fail to trust God and obey him. Fourthly, the text tells us the results of what happened. They are broken relationships and misery all around. When, Sarah, when Hagar realizes that she conceived, she looks with contempt on her mistress. You can just imagine uh, the, um, the conversation. Oh, Sarah, I'm so tired. Please, can you get me some water? Oh, I'm not feeling well today. Sarai, please, could you uh, just go and get me some crackers? Oh, Sarai. You just hear that playing out in the tent. Sarai goes to Abram and says, You've done this thing to me, Abram. May the wrong done to me by you, may that be on your head. I gave you the servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Hagar and Sarai's relationship is broken. Sarai and Abram's relationship is broken. Abram and Hagar, who are now man and wife, their relationship is broken because Abram says, I don't really want anything to do with her now. Sarai and Hagar have got it going on because Sarai goes on and humiliates and oppresses Hagar. Then Sarai, verse 6, dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Distrust always leads to misery and brokenness God's promises always require us to wait God's chosen time God's promises always require us to trust rely and depend on God's chosen means and God's chosen instrument and God's chosen method the ends will never justify the means and so Abram and Sarah take the matter of fulfilling the promise into their own hands to quote the song, they did it my way. God's promise, my way. They're flagrant, irrational, and gratuitous in the light of God's promise. And Abram's promise, well, problem wasn't that Sarai couldn't have children, but rather that God's promise and his apparent fulfillment of it was so slow. And so here for us are not examples worthy of emulation, but an opportunity to learn what not to do while we wait for God to fulfill His promise. Here we learn that distrust of the Lord and His promises always leads to misery and brokenness. We must learn to trust God because God is trustworthy. In fact, the only reason that you need to trust the Lord is that He is trustworthy. So that the Christian life is about the God of promise and the life of faith we live. When it comes to the Lord, a promise made is a promise already realized. Because when God makes a promise, that promise is not just kept, it is as good as done. It is already realized, but you might have to wait. That's why in Joshua 21 we can read that the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors and they took possession of it and settled there and the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. In Peter's second letter we read that above all we must understand that in the last days scoffers will come and they'll follow their own evil desires and they will say to us, where's the coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died everything goes on as it was since the beginning of creation but they deliberately forget, but you do not forget this With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. There is a way that we, like Abram and Sarai, might decide that it's time that we take matters into our own hands. And so we attempt to work God's promise into our life. Or we attempt to work out our salvation in our own way, through our own works righteousness and our own self-salvation. And not trusting by faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. The only way to be saved is a righteousness that comes through faith in Him. And so Abram, this great example of faith, also becomes a great example of failure because he does get it wrong at times. Wavering distrust does not ruin everything, but it certainly does lead to misery and it makes a big mess of things. The second thing that we notice from this passage is not just the, uh, the gratuitous distrust of Abram and Sarai, but the gratuitous kindness of God in Hagar's story. Uh, The God who sees is kind enough to pick up the pieces, and so we arrive at verse seven. Uh, uh, Hagar flees, she runs away, and the angel of the Lord finds her at a spring in the wilderness on the way to Shur. And he says to Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Uh, The major human parties in this story, they've been happy to leave things as they were. Uh, They had worked out a plan, and although it had some downsides, it would work out okay as far as they were concerned. But God is not happy about it. The point is that God hates misery and brokenness. He didn't create us to live that way. He loves harmony and peace, justice and righteousness. And so when he sees this woman and knows that she has been mistreated horribly by God's people, he responds and he reopens the issue. Can I just interject for one moment here and say that there might well be people here among us. You might be this person who in the course of your life has been mistreated by the people of God. You have suffered at the hands of Christians. You are on a knife's edge when it comes to this whole Christianity thing because of the way that you have been treated at some point in time in your life. Can I say that do not let the people of God distort and pollute your vision of God. God comes to Hagar in the wilderness on the side of the road at this well and has this personal encounter with her. The angel of the Lord says to her, not what she wants to hear, by the way, return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude you're pregnant and you shall bear a son verse 11 you shall call his name ishmael because the lord has listened to your affliction he shall be a wild donkey of a man can you imagine that hi this is my son ethan he's a wild donkey of a man but that's okay he shall be a wild donkey of a man his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen and so she called the name of the lord who spoke to her you are a god seeing for she said truly here I have seen him who looks after me God is the one who looks after her God is the one who looks after us and God is the one who looks after you there's deep irony that this Egyptian uh, slave actually gives God a name you are a God of seeing What you need to know this morning is that regardless of what you have experienced, God sees you, and he knows you, and he comes close to you, and he draws you back to himself. The issue here is that God loves all people. He loves The poor, the downcast, the outcast, the refugee, that is his nature. And although God makes an exclusive statement about salvation, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. He is inclusive of all people. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We see this in our gospel reading in Mark 7. Jesus is engaged in his ministry to the Jews when a Gentile woman comes to him and begs him to help her daughter. And in language that sounds really harsh to us, but which was clearly understood by the woman, Jesus responds by telling her that it's inappropriate to give to the Gentiles what has been reserved for the people of God first. But she reads Jesus' response being full of hope, and she continues to ask Jesus for help. And he hears her point, and he gives her what she asks for. Jesus knew that God had called him to minister to the Jews first, but he cannot resist this woman's logic. After all, God's final intention through him is the salvation of the whole world. God's blessing on Hagar is part of his common grace and kindness toward his creation and all people on the earth. God is the one who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. But what we need to notice here is that God is kind regardless. Hagar doesn't have any parts in the salvific promise history that God is creating through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not Abraham, Ishmael, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hagar is a dead end, a cul-de-sac, as it were. And yet God is still kind to her and to her offspring. Hagar counted for nothing in the eternal plans and purposes of God. And yet God still met her. Abram and Sarai are not worthy of emulation in this passage. Hagar isn't either, by the way. The only one who is, is the Lord himself. And so we learn from him... Not to show favoritism, not to those who can help you back, not to invite those into your life who can invite you back, not to be kind because you will receive kindness in turn, but rather to emulate God who is kind when it costs, when it has no benefit, when it doesn't further his own plans or purposes. Be kind because your father in heaven is kind. Be kind even when kindness does not get you anywhere in this life. When the king in Matthew 25 comes and says to those on his right, blessed are you and take your inheritance in the kingdom. For when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And when I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came and visit me. And the righteous said, Lord, when did we do that? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or give you a drink? When were you a stranger and we invited you in? When were you sick or in prison and we visited you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters, you did for me. God is faithful to his purposes, his promises, and his people. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And though God's ways of expressing his faithfulness are sometimes unexpected and bewildering, whether it takes a long time or it's kindness to those who don't further anything in his plans, whether it looks to the casual observer like unfaithfulness, the final testimony of those who walk with God through life's ups and downs is that every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, don't distrust God's promise. It will only ever lead to misery. And be kind, because your heavenly Father is kind He was kind to you when he shone the light of the gospel into your dark heart and brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But Paul writes to Titus, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. And so let me ask you, friends, this morning, while you wait, will you be kind And while you wait, will you continue to trust the Lord even when it might look like he's not doing anything and you don't feel like you're any closer to the promises than you were 10 years ago? Would you bow with me and let's pray. Our Lord God and heavenly Father, give us faith to receive your word, the understanding to know what it means and how it will apply in our lives, and the will to go from this place ready to be transformed into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Mold us, shape us, and give us soft hearts and minds. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.